I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. You're listening to The Leaf Report with Canadian Press National Hockey writer Jonas Siegel and the Athletic TO's James Myrtle. Hi, James. It is recording this on a Thursday. Uh, what? Can we talk about Ibaka? That's all I've been. All we've been talking about at the Athletic. I would love to talk about Ibaka, but I don't think that's going to be a good idea on the Leaf Report podcast. Come on, give me like fifteen seconds on Ibaka. This means they're going for it, right? Yeah, it means they push the chips that they have into the table and, and actually tried. Like, there's there's only so long you can be good and not try to be really good and try to actually take out the team at the top and he gives them a better chance are they going to beat Cleveland now with Serge Ibaka probably not are they going to get you know past the first or second round maybe maybe not but he's like a significant upgrade over what they have it's funny before the Leafs beat the Islanders on I don't even know what day we're at anymore I think it was Tuesday before they beat the Islanders I was looking at it and because now I have to take more of like a total view of Toronto sports I was looking at it, and the Raptors were in free fall. I think they won four of 14. The Leafs had won two of eight. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> it's, it almost felt like, and, and there's a lot of people are kind of down on the Jays. I don't know. It just it felt like things were going in the wrong direction again for Toronto sports. For But I, I don't know if that's the case. Well, and for MLSC, uh, it's not good for them. That's a lot of money potentially lost if, if both teams – like the Raptors aren't going to miss the playoffs, but if the Raptors are suddenly just a first round exit and the Leafs miss that that's big. So let's get into the Leafs. Uh, we don't know um, exactly what the status is on Mitch Marner. Mike Babcock's quote after the game was basically nothing uh, that he didn't know yet. Um, it didn't look great. He didn't look comfortable. It looked like his shoulder. Um, let's talk about what it would mean to the Leafs if he were to be out any period of time. What's kind of the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the impact he would have on being out of their lineup? He is their leading scorer. He is on the top power play unit. And especially, I would say, in the last five weeks, maybe four or five weeks, he's been extremely noticeable at driving play, uh, at breaking the puck out. It's almost like like he's a winger, but he's almost playing the center role, if that makes sense, on the power play and on that line where he's getting the puck in the D zone and getting it through the neutral zone a lot with speed. That's what that line had with JVR and Bozak with Kessel used to do that, where he would, and they they used to be more on a rush, whereas you see Marner do it and then they set up more of a cycle. But um, we actually, um, I, 
hopefully Marner's not that hurt, obviously, because who wants anyone to be hurt? But uh, Mike Johnson, the the former Leaf player and the analyst, has been working on a story for The Athletic about Marner. So hopefully he's not hurt so we can run the story. But it was interesting, some of the things he put in there, and I don't want to steal what Mike wrote about, but it's there's a lot of things going on with Marner that, like, laymen, even guys like you and I that know hockey as observers can't see the stuff he's doing. But he's he's um, he's been... To me, he's been very impressive the last like five weeks. He's been making even more of an impact than earlier in the year. Well, it's funny you mentioned um, how he drives that line. Babcock talked about that uh, maybe, I don't know, a week ago or something like that, where he talked about how it's it's unusual that you have a winger driving the line. And I think he compared it to Patrick Kane. And he said the big thing is they don't need a dominant center next to them. They don't need someone to set them up. They don't need someone to create for them. They kind of do that themselves. And you think about it with Kane, and it's it's a similar dynamic. Like, they're very similar players. But even with Kessel, like, Kessel doesn't need a great center. In fact, he might be actually better with a guy who's just going to get him the puck, and he can actually make things happen. But how would it change their lineup if they didn't have him in it? It would impact their power play because, you know, even on that top unit, he kind of drives a lot of what goes on. And then at even strength, suddenly you might move up Neander to play with Bozak and Van Riemsdyk. You might move up, I don't know, maybe you put Levo there. But basically, you'd lose that driving force. How do you think it would change kind of the composition of their lineup if he were to be out? I think you've got it. I think you keep the Bozak-JVR line if you keep those two together, which they have been basically all season. And for years now, they play together and they have chemistry. If you keep that as like a sheltered scoring line, and you flip Nylander onto there, I mean, that would be a bad defensive line. But Nylander is another example of a guy who can drive a line, and that's why, I don't know if we decided on what the quote of the week is, but anyway, we're going to talk about Nylander later, but like Nylander's a guy who Babcock has pegged as, we probably think he's going to be a center because of the way that he drives a line and the way that he can break the puck out and all of those various things. I think that that makes sense. They're lucky in a sense that Josh Levo and I can't remember if he's on our list or not. Probably not. Can I just talk about Levo? Yes. Oh, he isn't? Okay. So I don't even know what's on the list anymore. I have failed you. I have failed. And we didn't even mention the sponsor. We didn't even mention Bab Socks. So yeah. this is this podcast is like way off the rails. We should almost just delete the first five and a half minutes and start over. But we're not going to because we're not that professional. Josh Levo has been so good the last two games. He has looked more like an NHL player than I've ever seen before. He always, to me, looked kind of like... He was always getting like eight minutes a game and he looked slow and big and with a good shot, with a really good shot. Um, the guy that he gets compared to a lot is Joffrey Lupul, kind of like Joffrey Lupul light. Um, I think Babcock said that, that Levo's always played on a scoring line and that the adjustment for him is going to be not playing on a scoring line. With Marner out, that might not be the case. And he had really good chemistry with Kadri. I can't remember if he played with Kadri with the Marlies or they're too, probably too far apart in age. But anyway, I, I just think if, if Levo can actually give them a presence like that, it helps alleviate some of the loss of Marner because you still can have three scoring lines. I think that's a stretch. And I think I've always thought it was a little bit of a stretch, this Joffrey Lupul comparison. He's nowhere near as skilled as Lupul, but I think you hit on a key point with him. Maybe when you put him with offensive players, like a guy who can create like Kadri and maybe maybe that frees up him to get some opportunities to shoot the puck. Like, he does have a good shot. You saw the goal he scored against, I guess it was the Islanders. Uh, he does have a good shot, and he does... Uh, you even look at his numbers last year. I think he had five goals in, like, 13 games or something like that, so he can score. 
but the thing I, that's always caught me about him is I never thought he'd be fast enough to play in the NHL. I still am not sure. Like he still looks like he could be a step or two too slow uh, to play in that kind of role. But like if you lose Marner, you don't have that same threat. I think what, what they're what they have with Marner. Matthews and Neilander is they basically have, and you can throw Kadri in the mix and, and James Van Riemsdyk, they basically have like a really good threat or two on each line. And if you take off Marner, Van Riemsdyk can't drive a line. He's more of a finisher. I, I think suddenly your dynamic isn't as threatening for opposition teams. And that's obvious, I guess. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I don't like, don't twist what I'm saying to say that Levo can replace Marner. It's just that if Levo can play a scoring role to a lesser extent, and you move Nylander onto another line, you've still got three lines that theoretically can be dangerous to the opposition, which is the key thing. Whereas if Levo can't do it, I'm not sure sure that Soshnikov can do it. Um, their, their best offensive players in the minors are hurt in Leipzig and, and Kapanen, and apparently Kapanen's injury is quite serious, which is unfortunate because this, you know, potentially would be a good time for him to come up and play. Um, it's losing Marner is going to be really tough and hopefully that they don't, the team doesn't come out and announce that he's fine in the right when this podcast is released. But it's an interesting thought experiment to think about how they can cope with a loss like that, because that's probably one of the bigger ones. Although Anderson would be worse. Probably one of the top defensemen would probably be worse. Maybe it'd be about the same. And one of the centers would be devastating, I think, one of the top centers. It's funny you mentioned the injuries because we've talked about that before. They they haven't had any of significance up front, especially like Riley missed a handful of games on defense, but like they haven't had anything to deal with like that. And that's fortunate for them. I don't know if that's youth. I don't know if that's luck, but he would be obviously a big blow. I think he'd rank right in the top five of players that would really hurt them we saw them lose Riley for a bit and it didn't it didn't kill them but it certainly we saw after a few games it started to affect them um we were supposed to talk about this last week so we'll interject this right now and again we are brought to you by Bab Socks. James is wearing the white ones today um we were supposed to talk about Dion Phaneuf last week it was the one year anniversary of that big trade that really took everybody off guard uh, they traded him to the Ottawa Senators. Obviously, the Leafs will be playing the Senators on Saturday. Um, looking back now, has anything about what you think about that trade changed? Um, yes. I'm more convinced that Phaneuf can't play. I'm more convinced that his play has fallen to a pretty sharp degree the last couple of years. I think it I think we could see it with the Leafs last year that his play had fallen. I mean, they weren't they weren't giving him the tough minutes anymore. They were almost letting him pile up points and I always didn't think that he should have been playing against top players. I always thought he was probably better suited to be a second pair guy. That's the determination they came to in Calgary when he was a lot younger than now. He's playing on a second pair in Ottawa, and I don't think he's succeeding. Some of that might be the partner. He's he's played mostly with Cody Cece, uh, you know, in as much as that I, I've I've seen Ottawa play this year, and um, has not been a good pair. It's been one of the weakest pairs in the league if you look at things like possession and, and stuff like that. And the Leafs, the, the biggest thing with that trade and the Leafs is getting out of the contract and freeing up the salary cap space. But the other thing is it created ice time to give to 
Gardner and Carrick and, you know, some younger players. And, um, I guess, I mean, I know we don't talk about this a lot and we think it's overrated and it is, it created a leadership hole too, where now the leaders on the team are more so Riley, Kadri, even Gardner seems to be a little bit more of a leader role. I would say it's still probably more guys like Bozak and Komarov and Hunwick, but like it, it certainly creates a void. There should have been flashing alarm bells to any team that was interested in Dion Phaneuf when two games into last season, Mike Babcock said, I cannot play this guy against top lines. Like that happened literally two games into the season where he changed up the defense, he moved Riley with Hunwick, and he started playing those guys against top lines. And I think the contract is the big thing. Can you imagine seeing what we've seen from the rookies now and knowing what the contracts are going to look like for them pretty soon? What would what it would mean to the Leafs' cap situation if they still had that cap hit of seven million on the book for four more years after this one? Uh, like it would have really paralyzed them a little bit in, in terms of what they can do. So that's the big thing for me. And it was hard. Like I, I tried to write a story from the Senators' perspective like what they think of the trade while also aligning that with what the numbers say. They say they've liked Dion, and I don't know that they can come out and say they, they haven't liked Dion, but the numbers, like you mentioned, are all really alarming. The point production, the possession, uh, penalty killing was something that Pierre Dorian brought up and said that Dion's been really good. The numbers say he's not been very good. So obviously just a big win for the Leafs, and you know the only thing that they'll have left over, I believe, after this year is the cap hit. Uh, I think it's 750 for Jared Cowan. They'll have Lindbergh in the minors, but that's that's it, you know, so they get out clean. Second round pick they got too. Right. So, no, it was a good trade. It was a really good trade. I I'm kind of kicking myself. I remember when he signed that contract. It was when the Winter Classic was going on. I I want to say 2014, is that what the Winter Classic was 3 years ago? He signed that contract and I remember sitting in the at the big house in the media room. And they did the big announcement. And I had to write a column about it. And it's like, man, what do I write about this contract? Because I understand why they did it. Because they were he was going to go to UFA within a few months. So I understand they were... The Leafs, at that point, Dave Nonis, was worried about losing enough for nothing. Or having to trade him as a rental or whatever. But they signed him right when he was having one of his most productive two or three month stretches of his career he had I think he had almost a point a game like they paid him right at the top of the market so they really should have waited because the team fell apart at, at the end of that season so if you wait till the end of the year and then I mean maybe he walks for nothing but maybe you can sign him for less than that like if the deal was six million a year or, but like he's a good example of a reputation contract and of a guy that's getting older and it's almost like a Commissaric or a Clarkson contract, even though he didn't go right to UFA. It's the same idea. And we're seeing so many guys with their teams where teams are just like, we can't let this guy go. Like Brent Seabrook in Chicago, there was a lot of noise around him that he was going to leave. He was going to go to, it sounded like he was going to go to Edmonton and for a huge amount of money. And he put Chicago in a difficult spot where it was get nothing for me or give me way too much money. And they chose door number two. And I think it's going to hurt Chicago for a long time. I think it like it reminds me of let's say when you're a kid at the dance and there's just somebody around and you just don't want to be alone like you don't want to get left with nothing so you just pick someone and you're just like okay like we don't want to have nothing so we'd rather have this guy and it's a mistake I think teams make and I think you hit on another point and a mistake that teams often make uh, 
They sign players, it seems like, when things are really good. And the question I always ask myself when that happens is, would you be signing this guy if he was really struggling right now? And if the answer is no, you should probably reconsider doing it. Like, if if Dion Phaneuf was having a really bad half season at that point, would you still sign him for seven years and $49 million? If the answer is no, then you probably shouldn't do it. And, and I don't know why it happens. I don't know why teams get into this mindset where when the, when things are really good, okay, we got to sign him, we got to keep him. I think it hurts you, and I think it's risky. And what would have happened if Dion Phaneuf left for, for free agency? You'd, you'd take the money that you would have paid him and found someone else probably for cheaper and probably given you the same kind of production. It's just he was their captain. They were kind of a fringe playoff team, and I think they felt like they had to keep him in the fold. Yeah, I think teams have to look at cap space and building a roster where you want every contract to be a relative bargain, that the player is either going to perform to the level of the money you're paying him or he's going to overperform. And if the answer is he's not going to be able to perform to the level of that contract, then it's better to not even have that player in that contract because having cap space is a weapon. You know, it can allow you to do things like what Columbus did when they got Brandon Saad, who who's a, a player that I really, really like. And when I did the Tarasenko story a couple of weeks ago, I had a chart on most even strength goals in the NHL the last three years. Brendan Saad was like sixth or something on that list. And a lot of people were like, holy cow. And it's like, yeah, well, there are guys like that where a team like Chicago is in cap hell and Columbus had a lot of cap space. So they took advantage of that situation. So the Leafs would almost have been in a better situation to let Funuf go because he can't live up to any contract you're going to sign him and they can make a predatory offer or they can do something else with that cap space. They can make a trade where they take on more space or they could do, they could have done something better than, than having him for so much money. Well, and look at some of the other contracts that they've signed more recently. Riley, basically no matter what, like unless he turns terrible, will either live up to that contract or be a bargain. Same thing with Kadri. He will either live up to that contract or be a bargain. Like that same thing with Jake Gardner when they signed with that contract. It, you just want a guy to be. I think it's. I think you're right about the cap. It's almost like people kind of take for that for granted. And for Ottawa, you know, people will even say, "Well, Ottawa's not going to spend to the cap. It doesn't so much matter that they're paying Dion seven or whatever it is." Um, but it matters because suddenly you could take that money and you can pay two players who would give you more production than enough. Anyway. We've spent probably too much time on this. Let's let's move on to the goaltending situation. Um, Curtis McElhinney did not have a very good start against his old team. You and I are both in the camp that he's not really that great, and he probably isn't any better than Jonas Enroth. How, how do you think this will evolve the rest of the year? Do you think they will give him any other starts besides the back-to-backs? And if they don't, do you think that's a mistake? Like, do you think they need to play him more? I think they have five back-to-backs. Maybe, yeah, I think they have five back-to-backs left, so that means five more starts for McElhaney. Do you think they should play him more than that, or would you be worried about what he is and not play him that much? Jonas Enroth save percentage watch in with the San Diego Gulls, which is where he has ended up, 954 save percentage. He's 10-1. and one. He's too good for the AHL. I mean, I think Enroth would have been a fine backup goalie. He obviously did not have a very good first four games. I would have given him six or seven to get things together. Maybe he's the wrong fit for the way that the Leafs play and how much how many chances they give up. And, you know, maybe he needs to play in a more... His numbers in L.A. were fantastic. They're in a tough spot with McElhinney because I worry about him. <laughs> I don't like the way that he plays in goal. I know his numbers with the Leafs are good and... 
I know that they've gotten wins with him in there, and I don't have a lot of confidence in him or the way he plays. My concern would be that if you start playing him in more games, you're going to get burned. So, But then, I mean, on the flip side, can Anderson carry the weight of playing 68, 69 games a season? If McElhinney only plays the second game of the back-to-back, that's going to mean that Anderson plays 69 games, which I think is way too many. And we've seen Anderson's play really dip pretty hard the last four or five weeks, and we've talked about that a lot. So this this is even more than the injuries, and there are going to be in, more injuries than they've had in the first 56 games. Even more than that, my biggest concern with the Leafs is the goaltending because I still don't 100% trust Anderson and what he's going to be. I kind of still think he's just an average goalie and we don't know whether did you see the piece that Dom Lecision did on uh he did a thing on Anderson and is he streakier than other goalies and he came to the conclusion that yeah he's probably in the top 10 um streakiness for starting goalies in the last few years or whatever which I mean that was his reputation in Anaheim so you're not 100% sure what you're gonna get from Anderson Uh, I think McElhaney has outperformed what he's gonna be able to give them I was kind of expecting him to not have a good night in Columbus and He's going to play again this weekend, so we'll see. There's a few things I want to hit on that you mentioned. Um, one, it's the streakiness is really interesting, and and I just looked at, and you helped me with this. I looked at the number of shots that that he was facing this year, and kind of looked at at Cam Talbot and how he's performed. He's facing less shots per game. He's played more than Anderson. He's going to play about, I think, in a, in and around seventy games. But the one thing that stuck out about Talbot with me is how consistent like his numbers were like he had one basically bad month and every other month was like 920 or above and you look at Anderson he had the bad start he had a really good November and December he had a bad January and he's had a bad February for the most part so far so it's been like up down up down or down up down up whatever Um, the other thing that you mentioned is it's kind of like a a big picture view that they need to have it's almost like if you don't play McElhaney a little bit more Anderson's play stands to suffer so you almost need to just say you know what maybe we give you a couple more starts a few more starts than we want to make sure that Anderson is able to play to a higher level for the rest of the year so here's one of the questions I don't know if you got more questions on Twitter from readers I told them to send them to you I don't we we, we haven't he <laughs> Jonas says he doesn't even read them so that that system is not going to work that system is brought to you by Babstocks. that system of people sending their questions for the podcast to Jonas on Twitter and he doesn't read them. Um, The one question I saw that we did get uh, was about, should they play McElhaney in the first game of the back-to-back because it might be an easier start and the team's going to play better, which is an interesting theory. The other thing I was going to say to you is, should they find really easy games in the schedule? Not that there are a ton of them, but maybe against, I don't know, against Detroit or Buffalo or, I mean, they've got some of those coming up. Should they just give McElhaney some of those starts because the Leafs are clearly a better team than than a, a Detroit or do they have any one I know they've got two in Buffalo coming and they got one in Detroit coming I can't remember if they have any other weak teams they're going to play there aren't very many there's only according to the stats guys looks there's only something like seven teams that have less than 10 percent chance of making the playoffs so there there really aren't that many bad teams and a lot of them are in the west but the problem with that is you need to beat the bad teams like you if you're in a playoff race, you need to make sure you get two points against the crap teams. The other thing with the back-to-backs, we know how competitive Mike Babcock is. He's probably looking at that first half and saying, the best chance we have of winning is tonight. 
I need to give us our best goaltending to try to win that game. The other thing is like you need to look at the matchups. Like if you're playing the Islanders on the first half of the back-to-back, that's more important than Columbus because the Islanders are a team that you're competing with. Um, is your level, and this kind of leads into the next point, Has how much has your cha- your stance on the their playoff chances changed with this recent stretch or has it changed at all? I'm looking at your list. It looks like your your writing's hard to read, but it looks like for McElhaney, instead of McElhaney, you've got Mackel concern. That's what it looks like. McConcern. That's going to be his new his new name. They're you're asking about their playoff chances. I think there's I think the stats guys have it right. They're they've got it like like Dominic and uh, and and Micah Blake McCurdy guys that you should definitely be following on Twitter have it about I think about sixty percent maybe a little bit higher than that. That makes sense to me. I watched the Panthers-Sharks game last night. It was an, a very exciting game. But the Panthers are coming on. They beat the Sharks, who I think is you know a contending team, and they were in the final last year and everything. Um, Luongo went down hurt at the end of that game. I don't know how bad that is, so obviously that has an impact. But James Reimer has played really well. Huberdeau is on fire. He has seven points in, in four games. They're... Um, they're coming hard. They're only three points back of the Leafs, and they've got a game in hand. Uh, Boston has been played really, really well since the coaching change. For I don't think it's because of the coaching change. Montreal bringing Claude Julien in there, I think, is going to help them. I think that they're going to be a better team. The Atlantic is getting tough, and we don't know if more than three teams are going to make it from the Atlantic. You look at the wild card right now. I was looking at it last night. The first wild card team is the Rangers, and they have something like seventy-three points or something. They're way ahead of Toronto, so Toronto's either going to get the one of the spots in the Atlantic or the second wild card. They're not <clears throat> they're not going to get that first wild card spot. So they're really competing against Ottawa, Boston, Florida, and to a lesser extent Montreal if they continue to struggle. I put their playoff chances at between like 50 and 65% and I think a big part of that is the goalies and injuries. Yeah, it's funny like when you look at this stretch and kind of compare it to that month where they they were winning or picking up points like basically every night. And I was thinking about it on my drive to your place to, to record this. It's almost like you have this table and you have all these different legs that kind of prop up how well you play. You've got like your power play, you've got your penalty kill, goaltending, scoring, defense. And it's like during that stretch, basically every one of those was solid. The power play was excellent, like ridiculous. Penalty kill was great. Goaltending was great. They were scoring a bunch. They were giving up chances, but the goaltending again was good. And it's now like of late... Special teams haven't been as good. Defensively, they haven't been as good. Uh, the goaltending's dropped off. And it's like suddenly they look a little bit more vulnerable. I'm not sure I think it's as high as you do, maybe 40 to 50%. Um, but again, the goaltending is just going to be a big thing. Do you think this stretch or where they sit will change their approach to the trade deadline? I don't think it will. I still think if they can move a Polak or a Hunwick for something they should I still don't think they'll they'll trade a a Bozak or Van Riemsdyk do you think this stretch will change their approach at all no and there's going to be a lot of trade activity before the expansion draft in June and there's going to be a lot of trade activity before free agency and around the draft and those are when you I think you look at the JVR Bozak moves and you look at maybe bringing in a defenseman and I'm I agree. I think that potentially they could trade a Hunwick or a Polak in in the what is it? We got a week and a half till the deadline now. Um, those that might be all they do is move out one of those guys and get someone like Marchenko in, 
I'm a bit surprised they haven't played Marchenko yet if they're planning on him being a guy that's going to fill in. But I'm a bit surprised with the, the way they do a lot of things with the guys that are healthy scratch and the guys that play every night. You know, I wonder if maybe with the back-to-back this weekend he'll finally get into a game. Yeah, that's one thing he should should be doing more often is on the second night of back-to-backs, take out the older guys in the lineup and play the younger guys. Like just common sense wise, it would make sense to have more fresh legs on the second half of back to back. Like Polak doesn't need to be playing on the second half of back to back or Hunwick doesn't need to be playing on the second half of back to back. Matt Martin doesn't need to be playing on the second half of a back to back. And going back to the Levo thing, when he was playing on that fourth line, it brought to mind for me what it might look like if they had players who could give them a little bit of offense, a little bit of possession on that fourth line instead of having guys, you know, like Ben Smith and Matt Martin and and players of that ilk that they could have more opportunity there for some guys who can give them some offense. It's huge if you have a good fourth line in the NHL because you're often playing that line against other teams' fourth line. So that's like a head-to-head matchup. And if the Leafs are getting, like they were with Ben Smith, they're getting 42% possession they're playing the other team's weakest players and not getting anything out of it. Like they're not being, they're not able to take advantage of the other team's weakest players. Columbus is a good example. They have probably the best fourth line in the NHL. It's often been Hartnell and Sam Gagne and uh, the Lucas Sedlak, I think his name is the, the rookie center. Um, that's that you look at possession, you look at, at, at point production and all that, that's been the best fourth line in the NHL. At least it was the last time I looked a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's uh, two veteran players and a rookie, and it's it's been a really interesting combination. I mean, I think that for the Leafs to be good, they're going to want all of their lines to be able to give them something, and their fourth line just hasn't... Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, because Levo has played so well, especially that game against the Islanders, that line was noticeable, and that line had a lot of zone time, and that line was causing problems for the Islanders, and it wasn't like they were getting a break, which is kind of what it feels like sometimes against the Leafs' fourth line. Part of the issue, I think, is Babcock likes to use that fourth line center to kill penalties, whether it's been Goche, whether it's been Smith. I think that's partly why Holland didn't work in that spot. He didn't want to use him on the penalty kill. What I would suggest in that place, and I, it just started me thinking this when I watched the Islanders, since Doug Waite took over for Jack Capuano, he's been using John Tavares to kill penalties. John Tavares has never killed penalties. I looked before this year, he had 13 minutes was like his career high. He's already done like almost 20 under Doug Waite. So what I would suggest is maybe using someone else to kill penalties and having a fourth line that can play. Maybe use Kadri to kill penalties. Like, I don't know, like just something different to give you a better lineup overall. You know why he doesn't use Kadri though. Face-offs? Yeah, and, and, but maybe you challenge Kadri to say, I will use you on the penalty kill if like you can start winning some of these draws. It's not like, I mean, Smith has been good Face-off wise, not as good, I think, since he came back from the hand injury. Uh, but I just think I, I really like when teams have a scoring threat on their penalty kill. I think it makes it, I think it causes some tension for a power play when you're killing against Tavares. Or like I like when Chicago uses Hosa and Taves. I think it presents a threat and I think it's something they could do. Well, imagine Matthews there. Matthews Marner as your PK duo. I mean, that would be... Uh... Marner, when he the the little bit of time he's played there, he's looked like such a threat. And that's exactly it. Like he and and I think it was in the Islander game where they used him a little bit on one penalty kill when Connor Brown I think was in the box, and that's exactly what he did. Like, can you imagine you're that defenseman and Marner's out there and you know if you make one error, 
it's a breakaway and it's a chance and, and possibly a goal. And when it's Ben Smith, you just don't have that fear. Um, one other thing we need to get to is the Bab Sox Babcock quote of the day. This podcast is brought to you by Bab Sox. Uh, so let's hear from Mike Babcock talking about William Neander uh, earlier this week. Willie's come a million miles uh, this year just in his compete level and his willingness to play without the puck and get the puck back. And, and when there's tons of space, he always has a skill set, but you got to learn to play without space, and he's doing a good job of that. So there's Mike Babcock talking uh, about William Nylander. I don't think he is the biggest fan of everything that Nylander does, but I think when he sees what Nylander can do with the puck and what he can be when he's kind of going full bore, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but I guess Babcock can be won over by William Nylander in these next few years. Well, the skill level there is is amazing. I mean, I, I th- it's re- still really interesting that Babcock sees Nylander as a center. I mean, I think that the succession plan is that I think Bozak's going to go. You know, I, I I could see Bozak getting traded in June and they put Nylander in that spot and they try and get a better fourth line center. And I mean, they've got wingers coming. If you feel like Kapanen can play, maybe your third line is going to be Kapanen and Nylander are, are going to be, I mean, that, that would be probably a pretty dangerous third line. Yeah. And you just shelter them crazy. So that would mean your centers are Matthews, Kadri, Nylander. That's pretty good. Like that's a pretty good one, two, three for your next few years. I guess it's going to be, can Nylander, I don't know. Like I see what Babcock means when he talks about the competitiveness. I also see how ridiculous he is with the puck. But that's a big thing with coaches. Like if they don't feel like, and and we saw this, and and we didn't touch on it as much as maybe we wanted to. But Neander was benched in the game against Columbus. So was James Van Riemsdyk. Van Riemsdyk's really cooled off offensively during this this last little stretch. I think it's going to be. I think he William Neander will be Babcock's biggest challenge to really try to get him to be more engaged all the time, to be better in his own zone. Because if he can get that, like this is a guy who's on pace for 55 points as a rookie, there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. I I know the fans love Nylander, but I think you and I see what the coaches see, which is that there's more potential there. Like he could, he could be really, really good. Yeah, you know, if he, if he had every element there. Anyway, I, I know that I've heard from the fan base over and over again that they don't want anyone to talk about trading William Nylander, and I don't think that that is going to happen. I think they're going to try and work with him and watch him grow. There was all this kind of talk around Kadri for years, and you know he is a better defensive player now than he was a few years ago, but I think it was overblown how weak of a defensive player he was. Nylander's so good with the puck that... You know, maybe that mitigates some of how much that other stuff matters. But if you've got him at center, you know, it's I think it would be more glaring that his attention to detail needs to be better. It's just the one thing that I see that Babcock sees, and Babcock never ceases to bring this up, is he floats a lot of the time. And sometimes, like, he'll go shifts and he's not engaged. I thought it was, like, a really semi-damning comment after that game when Neander had the hat trick against Boston when Babcock said, you know, I wish we could bring this Pasternak kid everywhere we go because Neander would play like that all the time. It's always a thing with, with Babcock, and I think it's good. I think that's why you have a coach like Babcock because you want to push and you want to try to maximize the asset as much as possible. 
Well, Babcock is type A, right? Like he is hyper, hyper competitive and he loves guys like that, like Marner, like Brown, like Hyman. That's He wants people, even like I think that's why he has time for Ben Smith and Hunwick and stuff because they're just wired in a way that they will always get down and work and give you what they got, even if what they got in the case of Smith and Hunwick isn't as much as some of the other guys. He wants guys that are giving absolutely everything and... I don't think Nylander's wired that way. It's not, you know, he's just, he's kind of like, I don't know. I don't want to pick on the guy because he's a great player, and I think he is going to get it together. But he's just, um, here, I'll let you do it. Well, it's just like one Babcock is coming from a place where he had two, ex, well, more than two, but he had guys like Zetterberg and Datsuk who are not only exceptionally skilled, but like is anyone harder on the back check than Pavel Datsuk. No, like he, he just is always going, going, going. So I would think just in, naturally you're going to compare players and you're going to be like, well, if I can get Nylander to compete like that all the time, I have a really great player instead of a really good player. Anyway, is there anything else you want to get to before we wrap? Should we talk about Ibaka again? I was reading about that guy's backstory and it's it's crazy. He comes from the Congo. Yeah. What else do you want to know? He's from a family of 18. And he like, anyway, it's just like, it's amazing. I know basketball fans probably know that better than me, but I'm I'm learning the NBA and Jonas can be my teacher. I'll try to come up with a, a comparable for the NHL. It's like you just got, or it's like you've been plugging in all these guys as your second defenseman. And suddenly you've got like a real second defenseman. So they've had Patrick Patterson as their best power forward, but he should be coming off the bench. So suddenly now you put Ibaka in, who's a really good power forward. Suddenly Patterson's now strictly in that bench role. Like your whole team, it's just the ripple effect of having a good player. Anyway, that is it for us for this week. Uh, again, the podcast is brought to you by Babsox. Check out babsox.ca. Check out their store. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Leaf Report. Follow the guys on Twitter at Jonas Siegel and at Myrtle.